Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, and welcome back to the second reading podcast for the week of June 29th. I'm happy to be joined today by my friend Jonathan Tylove, chief political writer for the Austin American Statesman, the Capitals Daily Newspaper. Jonathan, thanks for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's our pleasure. Um, Jonathan and I have talked a little bit about uh, some of the stuff that we want to talk about. Texas continues to be in the national spotlight as one of the hot spots of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S., and it's hard not to talk about that. Uh, but first, I want to talk, you know, well, I want to talk about how the state is responding eventually, and in particular, check in on how Governor Abbott is responding to the worsening situation. But I want to start today on a subject that we haven't really talked about so much so far in the podcast, and that's the election for the U.S. Senate seat in 2020. The incumbent Republican Senator John Cornyn is running for re-election to his fourth term in that seat. Multiple Democrats lined up to challenge him in the spring primary, and the top two finishers in that primary were M.J. Hagar and Royce West. Hagar, who's never held elected office, but mannered a strong challenge, yet an unsuccessful one to an incumbent Republican congressman in 2018, finished first in the first round of voting with 22-plus percent. Royce West, the state senator from the Dallas area, first elected to the Texas Senate in 1992, narrowly came in with 14-plus percent. In a fairly high turnout primary, there was a gap of about 140,000 votes between Hagar and West, which at least nominally makes Hagar the front runner. So we're talking about this today because there was a short televised debate between them last night. And, and in a lot of ways, it was the first sign of fireworks, at least the first public sign, in what up to this point has been a fairly quiet race. So, Jonathan, you wrote about the debate in today's paper. What did you make of that debate? Well, it was uh, it woke me up. It may have woke, woke the race up. As you said, it's been a very quiet race, in large part because of uh, the pandemic. So, uh, you know, most of the time since the March 3rd primary, they haven't been able to campaign in person or in any of the usual ways, which has dampened their ability to generate news and kind of obliterated coverage of the race. So while some of the things that came out last night were not unexpected, the intensity of them were entirely unexpected. And I think uh, I don't think either candidate going in would have known how hot it would get, how quickly and, we'll uh, talk about how that happened. I mean, there was, you know, there was that there was a, a particular flashpoint. So, you know, as much as we're saying it may have woken the roast up, I'm guessing a lot of people didn't see it. So, so give us a little bit of the color. First of all, it's only a half hour, which is, I think, fairly unusual. Um, usually, you know, you have an hour. So it had to be kind of packed. And it was um, just the one anchor who was interviewing them. And the first 15 minutes were pretty much just bashing um Trump and Cornyn. 
And then at one point, um, sort of previewing what was to come, she asked um, the candidates to offer one word to describe something good they could say about their opponent. And throughout the uh, primary and now the runoff, Hagar has treated Cornyn as her opponent, looking toward to him and the fall and kind of ignoring whether it was the multiple people who were running against him in the uh, against her in the preliminary primary or in the runoff. And she said, I have nothing good to say about Cornyn. And uh, she was told, no, we're talking about Royce West. And she said, commitment. And he said about her military. Anyway, it then came time for them to ask a question of each other. And Hagar, who's, you know, essentially nursing a front runnership and wants to keep things uh, steady, asked Royce if there was, if he could talk about the things they have in common that would make them a better senator than Cornyn. And uh, he did not return the favor. And he said, why is it that you contributed money to Cornyn's campaign, albeit, you know, 10 or 20 bucks? And why is it that you voted in the 2016 Republican primary uh, for president? And and I think part, part, part of the color there, if I can just cut in for a second, is that as he delivered that, you could see her, and you captured this in your story in The Statesman, you know, her face visibly changed. Who, you know, is trained to kill. I mean, this is, you had, you had this <laughs> well, look. Tell, tell, tell people why you say that. <laughs> well, because she was, a, she's, she's got the distinguished flying cross. She was a, a helicopter pilot. And she uh, was wounded and, you know, in, in her, under heroic circumstances. And she talks about how, you know, uh, when she's talking about um, assault weapons, I'm, I'm trained to use weapons of war. So the point is, this is, this is a military woman. And she looked at Royce like, you know, you don't know what you just did. And, in, and she returned fire sort of way beyond what he had said, because she said, that the reason she gave $25 to Cornyn was because that was the price of being able to get a meeting with him, that that's when she realized how corrupt the system was, decided to run. And in fact, Royce, you're part of that corruption, that you've enriched yourself as a senator, uh, practicing law while you've been serving in the legislature, legislating on your behalf, not on the people's behalf. And that's what's wrong with politics. Uh, it went downhill from there. Um, and so, I, yeah. you know, I, I think there's something about, you know, a typical challenger primary here if we step back a little bit in that you know you have somebody who's a, a front runner trying to keep the race quiet maintain the advantage and not shake things up and it's it's a typical situation for the person who is ostensibly coming from behind to try to shake up the race and to be more aggressive and so in some ways there was there was some kind of predictable about this given that the you know early voting started uh, yesterday in, in Texas as we record this on Monday. And so this race is coming down to its final stages. And, and I, you know, I'm, I wasn't surprised that Royce West tried to shake it up. But nonetheless, may, whether it's just because it was a point off the line or because it did get hot fast and he did, you know, really get fairly aggressive it was pretty notable. And I, I want to talk to you about, you know, then unpack that a little bit. Some of the the underlying currents in this race. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about the look forward to the fall in this race a little bit. You know, th there's a sense in which this race, once it came down to West and, and MJ Hager, was kind of two different versions of what attacked a Democratic candidate might take in Texas, right? Right. 
you know, I mean, I mean, how would you how would you describe that? Well, I mean, well you know, yeah, no, basically, there's the appeal to the center. See if you can get some crossover votes. Uh, people who are uh, just can't take Trump, but are normally Republican voters. Um, it's some of what Beto's appeal was, sort of to suburban moms and and white voters, and he did better. Beto O'Rourke, who ran for the right. for the Senate in 2018, right, and with, lost. With, Lost. He did. He did on a statewide basis what MJ did in a single congressional district. So that's her appeal. It's. It's. She's not uh, as as Royce pointed out. She's not deeply committed to the Democratic Party. But that theory is that what you want to do is to be able to attract voters in the middle, people who might be uh, independent or Republicans who just can't countenance uh, Trump and are ready to vote for a Democrat under certain circumstances. So uh, suburbanites, uh, white women uh, particularly, and this is, this is the constituency that propelled Beto O'Rourke when he ran for the Senate in 2018 to a very close loss against Ted Cruz. Uh, the counter-argument is what Democrats really need to do is not worry about trying to appeal across party lines, but just bring out every last uh, base voter. So it's black voters, Hispanic voters, Asian voters, young voters, and, urban liberals, and urban liberals, and and just maximize that. And I think while while Royce isn't sort of a uh, he's not an AOC progressive, he is someone who's been on the on the the battlefront for civil rights and other issues important to those constituencies. And so he would have been someone who could make the argument that he's going to maximize the kind of turnout that Barack Obama got out of black voters that really made the difference. Well, and the, and the recent attention to civil rights and and racial inequity, I think, has shaken up this race or sort of complicated it, particularly for Hagar's status as a, as a front runner, but also for the way that Royce West presents his candidacy in the race. And I think we saw him making reference to that to some degree last night, but I thought fairly subtly. Did you read that the same way? Well, it was both subtle and unsubtle. The subtle part was, you know, I have a record on this. I, you know, I have experience. I was there on body cams and on racial profiling and other voting rights, all these issues. What was less subtle, but was maybe as important was when she accused him of being corrupt. He said, well, I'm from the projects in Dallas and if you think that uh, my being able to make money and help people in my community with jobs is a problem, go ahead and say that. And that was, um, you know, laying down a marker that if you're accusing me of corruption, you are playing on an old stereotype and that is not fair. And in fact, the response from Cornyn's campaign afterward is, well, she's accused him of corruption. Now it's up to her to prove it. So you raised Cornyn and I want to transition to that, but I do want to, I want to you know, ask, you know, one last judgment on your part. You've been following this race closely for a long time. You know, just to be fair, as people that, that watch this a lot, you and I were both, you know, frankly pleased to see something that just wasn't snoozy again. Do you, but do you think it changes the dynamic of the race? I don't know. I don't know. I think what, what it's going to depend on is Royce West, his practical ability to maybe uh, change the outcome here in what is obviously going to be a relatively low turnout election, was to deploy all the allies he has, because he has endorsements from legislators across the state and other local officials. And, you know, I always was always, maybe that's just something they, they do because, well, you know, it's just pro forma. 
If people rally to him now uh, because they feel that she crossed a line, I think that does make a difference because these are local officials who can turn out people um, and it might make a difference. I mean, you know, we're even waiting now for the results in Kentucky from last week where Amy McGrath, who, like MJ Hager, was um, a veteran, a, a pilot, seemed to be the far and away front runner, and she's now locked in an undetermined outcome, we should know today, a legislator named Booker, who is African-American and really sees the moment with the protests to change that, that race. It's just that he's a much younger and more dynamic version of Royce West, so he may have been in, in, in better stead to try, to try to capitalize on that. So I don't, I don't know if Royce has that those kind of chops. I mean, I, you know, I, I think as we look at this election, you know, that we're now, you know, for, you know, the voting has started for all intents and purposes in the, in the very short term, I think it's hard not to say that the combination of the pandemic and the increased salience and public attention to, to issues of race and racial equity have changed the terrain of this campaign and they, they've changed the terms in which people are going to receive these candidates. So, you know, I think in particular the the approach that was so frankly in vogue in democratic politics in 2018, which is bring candidates like MJ Hagar to the fore. These are candidates that have little political experience, but you know, some other kind of civic experience or, or cultural kind of heft, you know, in a lot of cases, as you, as you mentioned in your comparison case, people that are veterans and you, you make an implicit kind of claim that, uh, incumbents, you know, have, have kind of lost their mandate, whether they are, you know, of the opposite party or inside the democratic party that people need to, you know, reset institutions. But I think that, you know, in in these races that involve, you know, in, in the case of Texas, an establishment African-American candidate, but amidst a continuing perceived failure of government, but also at a time when government action is seen as, as, seen as central, the equation has changed a little bit. I think we just don't know how much. And so as we go into the election, you know, it seems to me you add that unknown, that is, you know, what is the, the mood of the electorate to two other big question marks? What is the level of turnout going to be? These are, as you say, notoriously, these runoff elections are notoriously low turnout elections, but we also don't know whether, you know, there's going to be increased interest because of the environment, and if so, how much? I mean, I don't expect turnout to go through the roof, but it's it's a little unclear whether we can really rely on the normal low level of turnout. So turnout is a big question mark. And then what is the composition of that electorate going to be if it does get bigger? Do we have more people voting in this Democratic runoff because the, the context has changed? So you have those kind of three big unknowns, mood, composition, and then level of turnout. You know, you mentioned, uh, you, you know, you kind of raised... John Cornyn. Let's talk a little bit about John Cornyn before we move on and talk about Abbott. I don't want to focus solely on the Democrats. So, so, so talk about where Cornyn stands right now. You've also written quite a bit about Cornyn and and how the how all these things in the current climate seem to position Cornyn, who went into this race as a favorite, but not not a prohibitive one 
per se. I mean, I think there's a lot of debate about that. I mean, I've argued a lot that, you know, Cornyn has been damned with faint praise by his own party in, in all of our polling, though nonetheless, you know, you can't undersell the fact that, you know, he's won three elections in a row to state Senate or to the U.S. Senate and won his last couple of statewide elections before that. So it's not as if you would call him weak, but there's always been a perception of vulnerability around Cornyn, but one that's never really quite been fulfilled. And so after 2018, I think there was a lot of questions about where he would stand in this in this election cycle. What do you think? Well, I, yeah, I think there was sort of a, after Beto O'Rourke came close with Cruz, there was sort of a, a sense that Cornyn would be tougher because he was a less polarizing figure. And one of the reasons that Beto O'Rourke ran so well was because people just didn't like Ted Cruz, even though his his base really loves him. I think the problem for Cornyn now is that people still, after all this time, don't feel strongly about him. They don't really have a fix on him, as you're pulling down. I think his favorable is around 35%, unfavorable, probably about the same or a little higher. And so I just think he, at this point, is subsumed under Trump. He's He rises or falls based on how Trump does. And for those people who might have been predisposed to Cornyn as a less polarizing figure, things are so tense and intense around Trump that I think somebody who has played the role of a go-along defender of Trump, who remains quiet sometimes but never disturbs the universe by challenging Trump, is a problem for him and one that makes it harder for him to look for uh, split-ticket voters who are going to vote for you know, maybe Biden and Cornyn. Um, so I think he's he's in a in a vulnerable situation because which may turn out fine if things go as normal and Trump carries Texas. But you, we, I just think things are in such a odd state now that we really don't know uh, where things are going to end up. And he's really not the master of his uh, of his destiny here. You know, I wonder if the calculation that the the Corning campaign seemed to be making pre pandemic, pre George Floyd was still holds. And that is, I think it was generally thought based on the fact that they bought an attack ad on on Royce West during an early Democratic presidential debate that that they preferred to run against West. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, no, I think that was clearly what that was about. And it was under the pretense of fearing West and therefore needing to go negative against him early. They were really promoting West because why else advertise to Democrats in order to increase the likelihood that he would be the nominee, or at the very least, mix it up with Hagar enough to kind of force her to move to the left, because I think what Cornyn really didn't want was to run against a kind of middle-of-the-road candidate like Hagar. But but you're right, now maybe he doesn't want to run against a um, invigorated Democratic Party with Royce West as the candidate. Right. I mean, just, you know, not to be, you know, overly subtle about it. You know, I mean, I think that there was a calculation that an urban African-American was a good contrast with John Cornyn in a general election um, and that they would benefit from that. And that seems to I'm not sure that's the case, or at least that the yield on that is as substantial as it have been six months ago. No, I, th- I think that's exactly right, though I would imagine that uh, right now his sort of uh, his, his campaigns being somewhat protective of Royce's reputation will give way to clips from this debate in which she's describing 
West as corrupt and part of the culture of corruption in the capital. Which is certainly the way that they wanted to run against him from the beginning, I think. And, you know, that that would be the surface message, I think, then with racial overtones. Right. So we will see how that how that shapes out. And we'll, of course, keep an eye on that race and return to it on the podcast. Um, In our last, you know, eight, 10 minutes, I do want to return to the to the pandemic and Governor Abbott last week. Right after we recorded this this podcast, Governor Abbott reversed the opening up process at that point. And when we recorded last week, he had just kind of hit the pause button, as people were calling it, as numbers in Texas were moving the wrong way. Those numbers really kept moving the wrong way. And within a couple of days of our recording last week, he undid the pause button and hit rewind to torture the metaphor, I guess. Um you know, they closed bars, they reduced restaurant occupancy, limited the size of outdoor gatherings. And in something that seemed to really capture the attention of the news media, closed down the ability of Texans to tube, um, which I think the national media really seized on as a very Texas part of the shutdown. And in the meantime, leaders in the major cities have done what they can to urge the public to wear masks. I think the, you know, the Abbott team has cranked up to some degree their urgency uh, in their messaging, but but it's been, I think, a, a rough backpedal for the governor. What do you what do you make of his position now? Oh yeah, I think this is clearly the low point of his governorship. He's had a governorship that has thrived on crises, you know, Hurricane Harvey, church shootings, school shootings, and he's acquitted himself well because those are things where everybody is pretty much uh, seeing eye to eye on this. There's been political animus back and forth over things like masks and stay-at-home orders from the start. And he was trying to navigate between what he felt was, you know, the public health imperative and at least, as, as you noted, pretty small but noisy elements of the base who considered uh, the pandemic, some, if not a hoax, then something that was not worthy of the kind of economic and shutdown that the state and the nation were undergoing. He seemed to be doing okay until he started reopening and then kind of went one phase to the next in rapid succession without really seeing how the previous uh, openings were doing. And then finally, you know, last week, I guess it was last week, I get confused on time, that he says, stay home. If you don't have to go out, don't go out, just stay home. And you realize things had changed. And um, he finally, I guess last Friday, acknowledged that he was wrong to open the bars. And that is for Governor Abbott, a very rare thing to acknowledge that he made a mistake. So, you know, this is, he's now become a national figure in a way that the last way he wanted, which is as a governor who didn't get it right. And, uh, you know, it's not as if he was alone in that, but Texas is a big deal and um, he's caught between, you know, what Trump likes and what um, the reality on the ground here and, and all the local officials who previously seemed alarmist, but now seem to have been closer on the mark than he has been. Well, there's been a dynamic in which they've always been torn between relying on city and county leaders to be the front line of, of both fighting the, the pandemic and sending signals and information back up. And and the impulse that I think has been consistent throughout the, the, Abbott, the Abbott governorship to be in charge, basically, and to and to make sure that state authority, when there was a conflict, if at all, you know, if it was at all possible to do, 
trumped local authority. Um, and there's, you know, history of them in the last few years invoking the, the Texas Constitution and various things to ground that. You know, I think as we look at this, I, you, know, you read of the fact that it's, it's a tough time for the governor politically and, and policy-wise is really just in the news daily now. So he closed the bars. There's now a group of bar owners, I think mostly in Dallas, that are filing suit against the state and suing him. And they're getting the I mean, I think the, the lawyer in that case is the same lawyer who's connected with conservative activists who filed lawsuits against the, the Harris County early on in the pandemic back, I think, in March. And, and you're getting various forms of pushback, and we're coming up on the 4th of July weekend, and it seems like they're going to have to continue to pivot in their public messaging, you know, simply as a matter of public health. And I, I think that they've they've struggled to get that tone both right and to make it seem authoritative rather than something that more akin to advice from the governor. I mean, he's he's stuck because I heard him on on TV last night, and the question is is inevitably why why not uh, mandatory mask orders? And I think they I think Round Rock was imposing fines. And he said, well, uh, I guess maybe that's in violation of my order because uh, once they attempted to, well, once they jailed a woman uh, with a salon in, in Dallas for opening too early, he went to extraordinary lengths to undo her uh, sentence. And he still can't bring himself to suggest that it would ever be permissible for someone to be fined or, or, or certainly not jailed for violation of an order, and yet he wants to say, but you really should do this. And there's a difference there, at least in terms of the way it appears that Texans respond to those two different, you know, one's a suggestion and the other is an order. You know, and you mentioned going into this, or, you know, as part of uh, this discussion that, you know, in some ways, the, the constraint looming over Abbott, at least given his political position and what we might call political predispositions is that the president continues to double down, you know, in the opposite direction. And any kind of, you know, more decisive action always risks a confrontation with the president, which, which it seems to me, by and large, Republican elected officials are still unwilling to risk, at least as long as, as, the president's position stays at least moderately strong. Now, his numbers are fading nationally, but I think you know, we'll have some polling soon to see where they are in Texas. But that equation has been a very constraining one for Governor Abbott. Yeah, completely. I mean, he got, he got through uh, Pence coming to Dallas last week because Pence essentially is not Trump and was perfectly happy to talk about the importance of masks in a sustained manner in a way that uh, the president would not have been able to do without making some offhand remark that would have undermined the message. So it's a very, very delicate dance. But yeah, it, it's still fatal to come on the wrong side of Trump as a Republican in Texas or really anywhere. Well, I think that's a pretty good um, summary of that position. So Jonathan, I'm going to thank you for being here. Thank uh, you. You're welcome back whenever we can arrange it, if you can, if you are willing to do so. Okay. I um, want to remind everybody early voting has started in Texas. So if you're registered to vote, you can early vote now. I urge you to get out there and do that. Pay attention to what the public health authorities are telling you as 
things continue to get worse in Texas. Uh, take care of yourselves and take care of the people around you. Thanks, and we will talk to you next week. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.